Uh, let me just say a brief word of introduction as to uh, what we're talking about and where the title comes from. It certainly doesn't originate with me. Uh, but as we think about the theme of evangelism, uh, when we heard what the GA theme was going to be, we thought we need to definitely offer up in uh, the Theology Track and Leadership Institute uh, topics and offerings surrounding biblical, historical, theological, and practical themes. So I'm hoping to lean more towards the practical, as JT said, but also with the theological undergirding that has been here throughout the morning. Well, you and I both know very well what our catechism is. And we are to glorify and enjoy God. The question is, how, how do sinners come to do that? Uh, there is a pressing need for the mediatorial work of Christ and the demonstration of God's gracious covenant to be applied to people's lives in a very practical way. In other words, to draw from the metaphor that we're going to be using today, uh, sinners need to be caught. So to use the words in Matthew 4.19, and the Lord Jesus' words, the professional Galilean fisherman and Simon Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So we're going to be thinking of together in this session about the ministry of the gospel and evangelism, and evangelism as man fishing. Uh, and really that's going to take uh, two different tracks. We're going to be uh, following one historical figure, Thomas Boston, and his life and works, uh, alongside a more of a historical overview of Puritan understandings of preaching, particularly with regard to applicatory preaching and how we go about the ministry of evangelism, or as Thomas Boston would say, man fishing. So, we're going to use the work of Thomas Boston by that same title, The Art of Man Fishing, to offer some reflections and encouragements as we discharge our ministries together. And two words about that. One, uh, this will be uh, hopefully very clearly and immediately relevant to teaching elders, but a special word to ruling elders that as you conduct your ministries of accountability and shepherding, uh, we want you who are going to be growing in a sense of conviction and strength and knowledge, dignity, and function of your distinct office. So, uh, even as you've been hearing today that the historical understanding of evangelism is very much focused on the proclamation of the word, you've also been hearing throughout the morning of the importance of the ruling elders in that process and cooperation with the teaching elders. So, it's very much relevant for both offices of elders. Uh, I want to share just some biographical data about a man named Thomas Boston. Perhaps you've heard of him. If not, I'm just going to give you some overview. Thomas Boston dates 1676 to 1732, only 56 years. Uh, we would classify him as a Scottish Puritan, although that classification is not about some controversy. It's not usually the case that we refer to Scotsmen as Puritans. Uh, however, uh, J.I. Packer, in his uh, book, uh, Preface to the Puritan Hope, does provide, uh, or sorry, that's Ian Murray provides an apologetic for including Scottish Brethren under the broad category of Puritan, as he even identifies Boston as representing really the last of the Puritans, prolonging the purity of the movement into the early part of the 18th century. So if you're used to hearing the word Puritan, it's likely the case that you think English Puritanism and American colonial Puritanism, but just providing an apologetic that it's appropriate to refer to a Scotsman as a Puritan. Uh, with regard to his uh, early life, he was born in 1676 in Dunes in Berkshire, um, and he's born in the midst of the killing times that Scott was telling us about in Scotland after the restoration of English uh, King Charles II, and the Scottish Covenanters were becoming a persecuted minority. The Boston family lived in an area known for political turbulence and rebellion. His father was a cooper uh, and a barrel maker. But nevertheless, a very involved and strong Presbyterian conviction, so much so that Thomas Boston's 
father is in prison, one of Thomas' civilian races, visiting his father in a covenant or jail and going to see him after he's been arrested for refusing to adopt Anglican practices. Uh, but under the 1688 Act of Toleration under William and Mary, the Boston family was able to travel in order to hear the preaching of the gospel. They had traveled four miles from their home to hear Henry Erskine preach the gospel. And it was uh, under the ministry of Henry Erskine uh, that Thomas Boston uh, was converted. So uh, Henry Erskine was a nonconformist pastor who would have been caught up with the 2,000 other clergy ejected during the Great Ejection. It is under his ministry that Boston is converted. And he records in his memoirs, and I'll say more about this in a moment, but uh, Boston is converted in the preaching of the gospel, particularly in these two texts as he identifies Matthew 3, 7, John 1, 29, both John the Baptist's uh, words, both of the Pharisees and the and then of his declaration of Jesus. You, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And that was a convicting word to young Thomas. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And also, John the Baptist's identification of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. Thomas Boston, right out of comes under conviction of his sin, uh, reaches a place of humility, and receives and rests upon Christ as his author in the gospel. Uh, just a word then about some, uh, his location there, the Scottish borders, the southeast of Edinburgh. Uh, those uh, two particular locations, Simperin and Edinburgh, I'll, I'll say more about that, about his ministry location. But uh, he took a degree in arts from Edinburgh in the early 1690s and only spent one session in the College of War completing his studies, something of a distance, uh, privately because of financial constraints. Ended up becoming a private tutor and is continuing his own studies while also apprenticing with a local notary, which gave him some additional research and study skills and afforded him a skill set to be uh, a presbytery clerk on into the future. So it's a word of appreciation to you who serve in that capacity. Those gifts are very, very important. There's a dignity in that. Uh, but even as a young man gaining a reputation, an uh, equal among the very fine Hebraists of his time, was licensed to preach in 1697 at the age of 22. Um, and the unique thing about receiving pastoral calls at this time uh, was that it wasn't processed in the way that we understand it, that there was uh, something of uh, landowners that had to also approve of the pastor coming. And uh, he wanted to receive a pastoral call for many years, but he actually wasn't able to. But his first one uh, was in the location of Simpron. And uh, I just found this very low quality picture here. Uh, but Simpron was the smallest church in all of Scotland, fewer than 100 in the town. And on his first Lord's Day, only seven people came to hear the new minister preach. Uh, he served there from 1699 to 1707, just eight years, but those were extremely formative years for him because there he found the people to be uh, ignorant of uh, spiritual truth and needing to be taught just the most basic and simplest of things. He says that the Lord's Supper had been administered in Simplin for many, many years, uh, but it was there in Simplin in the early ministry that he developed pastoral practices that he continued his whole life and served him very well throughout the years where he would, of course, preach on the Lord's Day several times. He would host prayer meetings in the manse and conduct regular visitation for catechetical ministry amongst the community. And his labors for fruit and the congregation eventually outgrew their building, and it is likely that he probably would have never left, but he did receive a call from another place in need of uh, great pastoral care. And that second place uh, was Ettrick, uh, the southwest. Uh, he served there in Ettrick, which was a much larger parish, 
uh, from 1707 to his death in 1732 for 25 years there. Uh, but according to Boston, he says that this new congregation that called him was in very poor state. He found it to be full of pride, self-assurance, and conceit. The pulpit uh, had been empty for four years, and he says the people had grown careless. Services on the Lord's Day were irregular. He found that even though he was there, he couldn't administer the Lord's Supper with integrity three years because he didn't believe that he could do so to a congregation that would appropriately receive it. Uh, he told his wife, after eight years of ministry in Edric, my heart is alienated from this place. He took the call because it was going to be hard, but even after eight years, saying my heart is alienated from this place. It's just a word of uh, consolation, perhaps, to those of you who have felt in a hard call uh, that it may be that you feel alienated. Uh, nevertheless, the Lord has his good purpose. Because Thomas Baldwin's patient labors for good fruit in God's providence. After nine years, or one year after he made the comment about his alienation, uh, he received a new call to go to a new place. And the session at Edric called a season of fasting uh, because the prospect of being bereft of their pastor left them in such sorrow they called for a season of lament and fasting. And that gave him a new sense of vitality of ministry. I can stay here because the people are receiving the ministry of the word of gladness. So he did stay another 16 years until his death. He's buried in the Perkyard there at Edric. Communicant membership at Edric increased to almost 800, double the entire population of the community when he first came. Uh, the fruitfulness of his ministry was set against a real hardship in his own life, mental health, physical weakness, suffering from depression and chronic physical weakness. Also, his wife, Catherine Brown, suffered greatly with depression and also uh, insanity as she was often locked in a room in their home that she referred to as the inner prison, uh, as was often the case of uh, many of the men of this time. Only four of his ten children survived uh, into adulthood. He buried two children during his first call of Simran and another four Another six at Etrick, or four in Etrick. So, four of his ten children survived into adulthood. Now, you may know him. Uh, this is the Etrick Kirk, just a good illustration of a Scottish, Scottish church uh, architecture there. Uh, just a few words in some ways that you might know the name of Thomas Boston, uh, and it's helpful to mention this first one immediately after mentioning some of his hardships. Uh, Banner publishes in the paperback series The Crook in the Lot, uh, 1737, five years after his death, it was first published. But it's his reflections from Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Uh, the subtitle, The Sovereignty of the God and the Afflictions of Men is Slave, or as Banner has his subtitle, What to Believe When Our Lot in Life Is Not Held Well and Happens. So it's a bit more contextually relevant in the world of prosperity, gospel solutions, etc. Listen to what Thomas Boston says in the Crook of the Law. As to the crook in your law, God has made it, and it must continue while he will have it so. Should you fly your utmost force to even it or to make it straight, your attempt will be vain, will not change, for all you can do, only he who made it can mend it or make it straight. And hearing those words, knowing some of his biography, it's helpful to realize that that's coming from a man who, who suffered greatly. Um, you may perhaps also know him for his uh, human nature and his portable saint, published in 1720, 
uh, banner as a publication on this as well, and to reflect really on the category that we've brought apart from Augustine and the pauses in the Westminster Confession, uh, the state of innocence, sin, grace, and glory. This content was really the substance of his preaching at both of his pastoral calls. So when you're curious what he's preaching, he's preaching the fourfold state of humanity in both places. And uh, this book has gone through a hundred editions in Scotland, England, and America. And this is the work that uh, Jonathan Edwards referred to Thomas Boston as a truly great divine. So uh, Edwards was reading Boston. Uh, and also this book had an enduring influence because it remained on the reading list of Old Princeton for many generations. Uh, the reason why we know so much about him is because he has, uh, many of his time, kept memoirs and banner publishes that. First published in 1899. There is also a collected works, but uh, everywhere I've looked, it's out of print, Sovereign Grace publications, but you can get it through Reformation Heritage. It's largely just that his sermon, because he wrote everything down and some of his slides. But if you're not familiar with him from some of those titles, you may be familiar with him, uh, thanks to the ministry of Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, so, uh, Boston is one of the so-called Merrowmen, uh, or maybe even more appropriately, the Merrowmen, because it was Boston who first discovered Edward Fisher's 1645 printing of the Marrow of Modern Divinity in the year 1700 in the home of one of his, his parishioners at Simprin, and then he commended it to the General Assembly in 1717, which would unleash then one of the most significant controversies in the history of the Church of Scotland. Uh, Boston produced a commentary note set uh, on the Marrow of Modern Divinity, but that was condemned by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Uh, basically, the Neonomians called the Marrow Men antinomians, and the Marrow Men said that the Neonomians were legalists, and nobody got along as a result. Uh, but if you want to know more about that, uh, you can, of course, pick up a copy of the Marrow of Modern Divinity, or more helpfully, uh, 2016 from St. Clair Ferguson's The Whole Christ, which is written against the background of this historical controversy, but really in a helpful way, takes the whole issue across the finish line to tell you why all of it really matters, because the whole marrow controversy is, is kind of quite obscure with the way it's uh, stated, uh, but St. Clair Ferguson is very helpful with this regard. But just as a word of application, though, uh, in terms of the ministry of Boston, the parish minister, again, only serving two pastoral calls, both in relatively obscure, small places, never taking up a teaching post, um, serving in the larger ecclesiastical context, but not taking any place of prominence. It is a great reminder to us that it is not where a minister serves, but the quality of service that they render that really counts, which is a very helpful word of reminder to us. Uh, still, his works became frequently published across Scotland in the 18th century and commended during the Great Awakening especially in the Colonies. Uh, he is a pastor ride on horseback across 100 square miles of his parish to visit every single family twice a year for private conversation and catechism. And when he was near death at Edric, the congregation assembled outside the window of the manse where he could preach to them one more time from his deathbed, saying to them, it is important and necessary to gain certain knowledge of our estate, whether we be in the faith or not. And so that brings us to this title for the talk and this publication as well. I didn't list this, the Art of Man Fishing, in the list of major publications because, uh, as far as I understand, the Banner of Truth doesn't publish this. You can get the Art of Man Fishing uh, through uh, Christian uh, Focus and their Christian Heritage line. You can get it free online through Monergism and through ebook forms and all that. But the Art of Man Fishing wasn't published actually until 1733, one year after Boston's death. 
even though this would have been among the first things he ever wrote. He wrote it in January of 1699 as a 22-year-old licentiate of the Church of Scotland before he took the call to Simpson. And it serves really something of his own personal philosophy of ministry, his own expressions of his commitments to the ministry of the gospel before he entered the charge of the ministry of the gospel itself. Forward, again, taking the words of Matthew 4.19 as a commitment for his life, follow me rather than the fishers. Of man. So he says, seeing I am called out to preach this everlasting gospel, it is my duty to endeavor, and it is my desire to be, Lord, thou knowest, a fisher of men. So from that particular uh, individual personal context, let me pull back a bit and, and, and mention some historical comment of Boston's context of Puritan evangelism in the historical contextual overview. Notwithstanding the great material that Scott presented to us, it's important to understand something of Puritanism in this particular context. Generally speaking, if the magisterial reformers focused on justification by faith, it was the Puritan movement's great aim to focus on sanctification, holiness. This becomes the prime importance, and related to this, why the Puritans were, of course, called the Puritans in the first place, because of their desire to purify and promote the holiness and continuing sanctification of the church and the people. The Puritans were concerned that holiness be worked out in the family, in the affairs of business, and ordinary vocation, in the common life of the community, because the Christian life was not a matter of private and individual concern, but vital and transformative holiness was needed in the life of the individual, in the individual in the family, the family in the church, the church in society. It was an all-of-life view of transformative holiness under the majesty of Christ the King. And it's because of this, as Hughes often old observes in his volume four of the reading and preaching of the scriptures, that Puritan preaching tended to become more evangelistic. It aimed at conversion. But the Puritan understanding of conversion is not likely what we think of when we use that word. And we've been hearing something of this throughout the day so far, and certainly not what the 21st century refers to conversion. The Puritan understanding of conversion was shaped by their response to the present circumstances in the English church in the 16th and 17th century. And at the risk of assuming that the Puritan movement and its influences are only isolated to one historical context, uh, in, in a bit I'm going to try to, to, to practically apply why what they're doing in their century matters so much for our continuing life as Christians as well. I'll try to identify that in just a moment. Uh, but what the English Puritans faced was a religious culture in which most Englishmen were already self-avowed Christians. Everybody's a Christian. To some degree or another, they had been baptized or perhaps even made a profession of faith at some point. They were members in a formal sense of the church, but lacking the ordinary functions of membership. They had the beginnings of faith, perhaps, but no progression. As a result, sanctification was lacking. If that sounds familiar, maybe, to some of your contexts, it's kind of helpful to think how it is in application already. The conversion in which the Puritans assumed was not one of paganism to Christianity, but rather to use the Apostle Paul's metaphor from 1 Corinthians 3 2 to see measurable progress and discernible growth of the Christian believer moving from milk to meat, Christian maturity and sincere growth in godliness, sanctifying faith. Conversion then was not a single, just one single totally transforming experience at the beginning of the Christian life, but rather a lifelong process 
of living unto righteousness, to use the words of Shorter Catechism 35. So evangelism in this sense, uh, and, and, and this is in a common thread throughout our presentations, that evangelism and evangelistic ministry wouldn't necessarily be categories that this generation of believers would identify with, not because they, they weren't categories that they cared about, but because they saw evangelism as essential to the ministry of the gospel itself, not a separate thing. Evangelism was sine qua non of the ministry of the gospel itself. Without evangelism, there isn't a ministry of the gospel. This is why there's such an emphasis on a word-based ministry for evangelism in this gospel as well. But I think the special point of emphasis that the Art of Man Mission helps us with is that Puritan preaching was not just exegetical and doctrinal. It had its hallmark with the application or the applicatory use of preaching of the priest's word and life of the Christian believer, or what is often called experiential preaching. Profoundly personal, effectively practical, measurable growth and godliness in the life of the Christian believer. In the words of Robert Burns, Christianity must be brought home to man's business and bosoms. Christianity should not only be known and understood and believed, but also felt and enjoyed and practically applied the real driving force of uh, what Joel Vicky calls discriminatory application in preaching. Be explicit about application both to believers and unbelievers in the context of the preached word. And this is where I think we can be very practical about this. It's just wondering if you are the regular preacher of the word. Do you, in a very literal sense, address believers and unbelievers in the preached word? That, that's a practice of our heritage. Very particular, very driven about how one should hear the preaching of the word. Uh, this was modeled uh, from William Perkins and the Art of Thomas, 1592, often called the Father of Puritanism, really representing the Cambridge School of Puritan preaching that formed and shaped generations of Puritan ministers about how to conduct the ministry of the word. And that preaching rubric looked like, yes, exegetical, yes, doctrinal or didactic, but especially with reference to that third applicatory use of preaching. Perkins writes that there is really application in two main forms for preaching. There is the, the mental application to the mind, and there is the practical application to the life. And that looks perhaps like a doctrinal application, reproof or correction or instruction. Perkins writes, these must be carefully chosen to a limited few, lest those who hear God's word expounded are overwhelmed by the sheer number of applications. Have you ever felt uh, in the ministry of the word that you just keep going and on and on and on? Slow down a little bit. Target a few, would you? Because you've got to keep them hearing you. He actually identifies in the Art of Prophesying seven different categories of listeners to sermons. And uh, this may or may not be helpful, but I think it's interesting how he identifies these differences. He says there is the ignorant and unteachable unbeliever, stubborn to the core, but physically in church nevertheless. There is also the one who is teachable, but ignorant, also knowledgeable, but unhumble, meaning they know something of the gospel, but it has not affected their, their soul. And there are those who are humble, but who lack assurance, there are believers, there are backsliding believers, and what he categorizes just as one last swath of mingle, meaning any of these are all together into one. 
But the point about Puritan preaching and the application and applicator use that we're driving towards in terms of evangelistic preaching is that Puritan evangelism, according to the means of grace, was expected to take time. It was often compared to the gestation of a child in the womb of a mother, uh, which is why Jack Packer critiques oftentimes modern evangelism in this way, saying that a conversion is usually thought of as being a short, sharp affair that can be precisely narrated and dated, and that is oftentimes normative in the minds today of the evangelical mind. And that's not, of course, to discount the fact that God may choose to use special evangelistic ventures in spectacular ways to advance or complete the conversion process. But Packer says it's not normative. What's normative is the main way in which God advances conversion in our day as in Boston is through the sustained faithfulness of parents, friends, and church teachers witnessing, instructing, and encouraging informally and appreciating and expounding the gospel from the scripture in worship contexts. This is how they do And this is just a side note. This topic has come up several different times. Something of a book into what Scott has already said. Uh, I'm just raising the question. I don't have an answer to it, but I'm fascinated by it. And if anybody else is of inviting the conversation. I am fascinated to know when the quality of American Presbyterianism evangelism became a constitutionally distinct function of the teaching element compared to that of pastor, teacher, administrator, and chaplain. Uh, perhaps it's from Ephesians 4.11 that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, but just sampling from the Church of Scotland anyway, 19th century professor, uh, pastor of theology at New College, Edinburgh, James Bannerman, Writes the Church of Christ, which is a great resource if you don't have that already. He writes about this particular topic in his chapter on the parties who exercise church power. And he speaks of the evangelist as an occasional and extraordinary office of the same category as apostle in the early church. Uh, and he said that those who advanced the evangelist as a continuing office were themselves controversialists. Um, well, such we are in the EPC controversialists, actually, because in the EPC, evangelist functions as an umbrella term for the functions of missionary, global worker, church planner, or itinerant minister. Uh, you can see some of Bannerman's comments there. I'm not necessarily agreeing with this I'm just observing the interest of the way the church has thought about the office throughout the ages. Uh, but what is the major uh, implication for the ministry of the gospel for us, I think, uh, is that uh, lest we assume that Puritan uh, techniques, strategies, rubrics, forms of preaching are antiquated and irrelevant, uh, I'd like to suggest that they're actually very helpful to us uh, in this century. They're an incredible resource for those of us who especially undertake what we often call the ministry of church revitalization. Uh, and that's because having a broad sense of the diversity of spiritual maturity in your congregation important and wise thing to be aware of. Oftentimes when I speak to new pastors and new calls, I find that they are often shocked to discover in their first couple of years the amount of elementary things they feel like they have to teach. That comes with a shock to them. Uh, but having a consciousness and awareness of the capacity of our hearers and preaching is an important ministry of evangelism as we understand who is hearing us and how they hear us. So being prepared with the theological equipment of our forebearers is a necessity, but we shouldn't forsake the wisdom of their practical instruction. How we go about our ministry in terms of the manner of our ministry, the mode and temperament is usually directly related to how long people will suffer our ministry. 
uh, and then, Lord willing, move from suffering our ministry to receiving our ministry with joy in the long run. So then, uh, to the source, uh, the art of man. Again, evangelism is not necessarily a word that Boston would employ in the same sense that we do. But Boston's idea of a minister as a fisher of man is that through both public and private ministry, God is at work in the hearts of his people to bring them to places of settled commitment, discerning spiritual life, and evident growth of the same reality. He writes, the design and work of fishers is to catch fish. This is the work that preachers of the gospel have taken in hand, even to endeavor to bring souls to Christ. Their design and their work should be the same. Essentially, he's saying, this is why you preach Christ, right? That people would come to Christ. Why else do you do it? And as this warning here, tell me, O my soul, what is thy design in preaching? For what end dost thou lay the net in the water? Is it to show thy gifts and gain the applause of men? It's interesting that a man without a pastoral call was wary of the sense in which he may preach for the applause of men rather than the glory of Christ. He's warning himself against that reality, wanting to lead men and women boys and girls to Christ. He offers this encouragement in the midst of not letting the vanity of the world dissuade you from the important task. He says, Oh my soul, beware of preaching smoothly upon the account of getting a call from a new parish. Have a care that the want of, namely a call, does not put thee to man-pleasing. No, no, man-pleasing must not be thy business. So by way of application of really this very short work, I wanted to walk you through the way Boston presents the ministry of the gospel, evangelistic preaching, evangelistic ministry, as casting a net, and how the gospel as net helps us think about really, again, a taxonomy of listeners to the preaching of the gospel, but also the application of the preaching of the gospel to those very listeners. So with regard to preaching of the gospel as a net, he says, fishers catch fish in a net. So preachers have a net to catch souls with. This is the everlasting gospel, the word of peace and reconciliation, wherein sinners are caught. So why or how is the gospel in a net? And how does thinking of the gospel as a net with which we manfish help us and encourage us in our evangelism of preaching and throw the substance of what remains here? Uh, and he gives, just to prepare you for this, ten reasons, as Puritans are off to do lengthy. Uh, one, the net of the gospel is so because it is spread out, ready to catch all that will come to it. Boston is known, and Calvinists here, the free offer of the gospel, as he says, God excludes none for the benefit of his gospel that will not exclude himself. It is free to all. As the net is spread, so slay out the word of the gospel to all who will hear, just as the net. Secondly, the net of the gospel, because as fish are taken unexpectedly by the net, so are sinners by the gospel. And here he reflects a bit autobiographically when he says, Little was thou thinking, O my soul, upon Christ, heaven or thyself, when thou went to Newton and Whitsome to hear a preaching, when Christ first dealt with thee. There thou God an unexpected cast, speaking there about his own conversion. Uh, just a word about that. Maybe that's your testimony. 
something of an extraordinary conversion to Christ, unexpectedly being caught up in a net that we didn't see coming whatsoever. Um, just personally, I myself was not reared in a covenant home or under a covenant nurture, so I identified with this a bit more with myself. But uh, fish are taken unexpectedly oftentimes, so they are often sinners taken unexpectedly by Christ. Third, as fish sometimes come near and touch the net and yet draw back, so many souls are somewhat affected at the hearing of the gospel and yet remain in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Maybe you're a Presbyterian like me where you get sent to the back of the church to shake people's hands and roll down and people make comments. Sometimes people are greatly affected and they're perhaps never to be seen again or seen not to have effect in the long run. Boston writes, wonder not in my soul what thou seest, that thou seest some affected in the time of preaching, and yet when they are away again, always worn off, the drawing of the quick, quick shoot that gives life quickly and then fades out. Understand that this is how the ministry of the gospel works oftentimes. Number four, some fish have not been taken fast hold enough by the man, struggle and then get out again. Here he speaks to those who are not sufficiently humble when he says, Wherefore, O my soul, if ever thou be taken up with exercised consciences, have a care that thou do not apply the cure before the wound be deep enough. That doesn't sound like pastoral advice that most of us get, does it? Take all means to understand whether the soul be content to take Christ on his own terms or not. Alas, many this way by having the wound scurved over are rather killed than cured. Sinners must be humbled completely before realizing that Christ is all as we say. He also says that all are taken in the net and you make some struggling to get free. I'll take number five and six and this one together. He writes, there is indeed a power in our will to resist. Yea, and such a power as cannot be exercised by the will of man, which can do nothing but resist, Till the overcoming power of, the God come, of God come and make the unwilling heart willing. Of course, the good Calvinist again says, Yet this struggling will not do with those which the net has fast enough. Indeed, God does not convert men to himself against their will. He does not force the soul to receive Christ, but he conquers the will and it becomes obedient. And in this way, the net is cast and captures that according to. God's sovereign design. So, as you've always interacted with, I'm sure, with many people who have said, oh, you, you Calvinists don't make good evangelists. To which we, we should say something to the effect that it is precisely because of our convictions about God's sovereignty that we undertake the ministry of evangelism with the utmost confidence, knowing that God's word accomplishes all of its purposes. You seven, he says, and then are many meshes in which the fit your call. This then is gospel preaching. Thus, to spread out the net of the gospel, wherein are so many meshes of various invitations and promises, to which, if the fish do come, they are caught. And this picture is, uh, as you cast out the nets, intertwined together with many promises, many invitations. And just think for a moment with me about the, the ways in which the gospel is being cast out and in the midst of your services on the Lord's day. The call to worship is a net, isn't it? Come and worship this God who is holy and transcendent. The call to confession is 
something of another knot in the net that grabs the hearers. Insurance is harder than preaching the word, administrating the sacrament of the table, and just plugging the word for the explicit sensing of the table. Uh, just, just because I'm here with the microphone, I'll add to it that those people who suggest that implicit sensing of the table only is more loving than explicit if you don't explicitly bend the table, you miss perhaps the best opportunity in the entire service to actually extend the hope of the gospel to those who don't have it. Like a knot in the net is these various castings out of the gospel to catch fish, to catch souls for Christ. He also writes, Lest the net be lifted up with the water, and so not for taking fish, and the fish slighted and pass under it, there are some pieces of lead put to it to hold it right in the water, that it may be before them as they come. Using the illustration of a weighted down net is the law to the gospel. And the necessary uh, humble uh, nature that we must come to to receive Christ right. He says, thou seest them uh, that both law and gospel are to be preached. The law is a pinnacle of the gospel net, which make it effectuates. Uh, Harking back to the fourth juice. Uh, just two more before a couple words of application then. The meshes must not be over wide, lest the fish swim through it, run through it. So neither must thy doctrine be general without particular application. It's, it's not appropriate in the understanding of Puritan preaching to make only broad application. It's looking for very specific application. And also, neither must they be too neat and fine and curiously wrought lest they hold out the fish. So he says, Have a care, O my soul, of striving to make by the way of any fine and curious discourse which thy hearers cannot understand. As sometimes we educated clergy can be guilty of that. Speaking in a manner that misses folks oftentimes. So with this illustration of the gospel as a net, he, he asks, Where should you be casting this net? It might seem there's an obvious answer, but he first of all says, you should be casting the net in the public assembly of the Lord's people. You should be casting your net in the public assembly of the Lord's people. We've heard again and again already today about the importance of the ministry, of the means of grace, believing that God's ways still work, and we cast out the net in obedience to Christ, and the Lord does his work, and it attends the faithful preaching of the gospel. So he says, you should cast your net in the public assembly of God's people. Yes, and good, but in a very helpful way, he also says, uh, you should cast out your net in private comments. I found myself particularly convicted by this, and I hope you might be as well. He talks about uh, encouragement in casting out the gospel net in private conversation. This would have been in the context, of course, of his uh, pastoral visitation, his catechetical ministry, but also perhaps incidental social meetings. He says, when you are at any time in company, let something that smells of heaven drop from your lips. Oh, what a shame is it for you to sit down in company and rise again and part with them and never a word of Christ to be heard where you are. I think that's a helpful word to us. Private conversation. The sweetness of Jesus be often upon our lips. Well, why does Boston have this model? Why does he write as he says? As I said, because of his being in the school of Perkins prophesying, understanding that of preaching, but because he is a man of confessional commitments. 
We know that the directory of worship is not adopted. 1729 in the American Presbyterian tradition, nevertheless, is a part of our heritage, and so it can be a helpful resource that we look to. And in the directory of public worship, has this very particular comment on what the preaching of the word should look like to, to bring some unity, not necessarily uniformity. Uh, this was a directory, not an obligatory, but uh, some unity to how the ministry of the gospel was undertook in the pulpits of uh, the Church of Christ. So because Boston was a man of shared confession, he modeled his ministry accordingly, with an emphasis on that third use of the applicatory use of the sermon of experiential, distinctive, reformed piety and preaching. Moving from doctrine to application was an important component, as G.I. Packer writes of Thomas Boston, that he exhibited dazzling mastery of the text and teaching of the Bible, a profound knowledge of the human heart, great thoroughness and clarity and exposition, great skill in applicatory searching of the conscience, and a pervasive sense of the wonder and glory of God's grace in Christ to such perverse sinners as ourselves. And the director for worship gives that type of instruction According to the context, drawing the examples from the text, the director even says this, you see it there on the screen, that he is not to rest in general doctrine, although never so much clearly confirmed, but to bring it home to special use by application to his hearers, which, albeit it prove a work of great difficulty to himself, requiring much prudence, zeal, and meditation, and to the natural and corrupt man will be very unpleasant, yet he has endeavored to perform it. Now, isn't it often the case that it would be easier to just say what the text says and then sit down? The, 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 the meditation upon how the word is to be used in the life of the congregation is of great difficulty. Uh, although it proved a word of great difficulty, requiring much prudence and meditation, yet it is endeavored to perform it. The director talks about the different types of applications, again, using Perkins' similar categories, providing instruction, confrontation of false doctrines, exhorting to duties, public admonition, and applying comfort to the wounded soul of the priest's word and application, the director also says. And as he needed not always to prosecute every doctrine which lies in his text, which is a helpful, corrective word to us, right? You don't need to say everything that could be possibly said in every text, right? So he is wisely to make choice of such uses by his residence and conversing with his flock. He findeth most needful and seasonable, and amongst these, such as may most draw their souls to Christ, the fountain of life, holiness, and comfort. I like that line, by his residence and conversing with his flock. It's a good reminder to me that that is a, a faithful call to come out of the study. Right? And go to the coffee shop. Have casual conversations with neighbors by his residence. What is going on in your life? Uh, when I call some other friends who are pastors and they say, Oh, yeah, I'm hanging out, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm playing golf, and I think to myself, Oh, you should be working. Right? It reminds me that they are. They are the minister of the gospel about their residence conversing with their flock. Uh, and of this application, it should be plain, plainly, painfully, faithfully, wisely, gravely, loving affection, persuaded in your own heart. These are the types of uh, application. This is the way that we should go about applying that word evangelistically so as to 
bring souls into the kingdom and to admonish souls within the kingdom to make progress in that same kingdom that they may be presented mature in Christ. And so just from uh, these various admonitions, just two as uh, two words of concluding encouragements, very, very practically. One, uh, a call for patient faithfulness in gospel ministry. Patient faithfulness. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 11.1. Cast your bread upon the waters, so you will find it after many days. It's the thought of going back again and again and again to do your labor faithfully and trust the Lord to do His work. Um, I'm, I'm not one to, to share personal illustrations uh, so much, but I, I can't help but tell you about a woman named Teresa Palmer in our church. Um, has uh, I first encountered her, uh, I didn't know I had. She came to the funeral of uh, a woman that she's dear friend with her. Uh, and there perhaps is no better context to preach the gospel than funerals, you know. Uh, but hearing the gospel preached for the first time at a funeral service. Um, I never met her. But then this clearly not then and all the rest and technology that led the ministry of the gospel to come into the comfort of a living room. Coming under the preaching of the gospel again after seven years of having the conviction of the gospel sealed in her heart and coming to faith. Theresa Ballmer is in her seventies and she's back on the time in our church. And she's uh, seven years under the weight of Sorrow and uncertainty of what do I do, to whom do I cling. Uh, and this is just a personal illustration in my mind uh, of a woman who received the preaching of the gospel but uh, needed to wait in God's good purpose. But patience, a call for going back again and again and again and again to preach the word, never knowing who the Lord is at work in their hearts and at what time. And also uh, a call to love. This first Sunday in June was uh, 10 years for me at Edgington, uh, where I had a joy to be pastor. And uh, I'm learning more and more that love uh, is of utmost importance for our ministry. Boston says, No preacher wins a man to Christ who is a stranger to his own heart. Your people know that you love them. So it says, Paul in 1 Timothy 1 5, the aim of our charge is love. An evangelistic is full of love. Or to borrow the concluding word from Charles Bridges, who writes in The Christian Ministry, published in 1830, love is the grand mark of our eyes. It exhibits salvation flowing from the bosom of divine mercy. It sets forth a most tender father, a bleeding savior, and a faithful comforter. Speaking the truth in love is, perhaps in a few words, the most complete description of our office. Love should pervade the whole tone of our ministry. So just to say that the art of man fishing is casting the net of the gospel and trusting the Lord to do his work mindful that there is a broad spectrum of hearers to our ministry and 
trusting the Lord to do that work, but we going back again patiently with faithfulness and with hearts full of love to call men and women and boys and girls to respond to Jesus Christ as his honor to that in the gospel.